the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to the Simple Truth Moments uh, show. Uh, We finally completed the series entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium uh, by Don Enavoldson, a colleague of mine. Uh, He and I wrote a book together along with two other authors. And uh, now that we have completed that, um, we are going to start a new series. uh, The book is entitled Homecoming, and below the, uh, the title... We have the subline subtitle, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. So there's a lot there. Um, took me four and a half years to write this thing, and uh, it's time to talk about it. Um, I wanted to start off with some explanation why it took four and a half years. I thought it was going to initially take three weeks. I actually uh, went away to the to the desert and figured all, all I need is three weeks to put this thing together. And uh, man plans and God laughs. So after three weeks, um, I had pretty much all I had was the titles of the chapters. And uh, th- this began a journey, and uh, a lot of learning had to be done, and a lot of uh, additions and amendments. So what we're going to talk about this morning is, um, well, let me just talk about the title, Homecoming. What does homecoming mean to you? I mean, if you're a high school graduate, we have our 10, 20, 30, 40, I actually went I'm going to admit this on the air, to my 50th uh, high school reunion uh, four years ago. So you can calculate and see how old is this guy. Anyway, um, but homecoming is a time where um, you come back to visit locations. You're returning back to a place. It's also a time to um, reestablish old um, relationships that you had with um, your high school buddies. and 
et cetera. And it's interesting that homecoming is something that is kind of universal and that people look forward to it most of the time. They look forward to homecoming. But even when we're on trips, you know, um, people who like to travel um, and they've been traveling, let's say, a considerable time, a long time, they'll always tell you, well, I'm almost always, um, the vacation was wonderful, the trip was awesome, but it felt really good to return back home. And so the reason I gave this book entitled it Homecoming is because um, ever since my Bible school days, way back in the early 90s, uh, I realized that I'm not sure that the, the church at large understands um, what our home is. And wouldn't that be something that, you know, if we take a road, if we take a pathway, if we pay, take a trail, um, we are on a journey, wouldn't it be really important to identify what our home is as identified by the Lord, by God? And it's not just the location part of the home, but who's there? Who's in the home? Who occupies the home? Because, again, part and parcel of going back to, say, a high school reunion um, is to see the people, not just to go back and view the old buildings in the classroom or the football stadium or whatever. It's, it's to meet up with the folks that you had experiences with, that you have your own personal history with. And so home... Um, is not just a location. And unfortunately, uh, we uh, folks of the nations, we Gentiles, uh, tend to think of it as what the it is the destiny of being on a path or a journey or a trail or a road or a highway or an Audubon um, is always got to get to the place. And the place is important but more important, way more important than the place is uh, who's attached to the place. Who's, who lives there? Who's waiting for you? And what are the relationships when you do get there? Especially home in the sense of family reunions with homecoming, not just high school or college reunions, but family reunions. A lot of times that's what the holidays are for. <clears throat> and um, it's all about looking forward to getting together with family, intimate relationships, uh, relationships with whom you've had a whole lot of experience. So homecoming, the title that uh, I believe the Holy Spirit gave me to name this book, it's a, a directional sort of book, but not just to places. Or locations. More importantly, it's a directional book as to restoration of relationships. Restoration of relationships. As it says in, um, in the Scripture, New Testament, it says the restitution of all things. And 
It's interesting when we look at the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, um, his Jewish name is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Um, John the Baptist announced pretty much that there's this restoration of a government. It's called the kingdom. It's where the king's domain is, the king's domain, where in this context where God is king, operates as king, functions as king. And so whether we're talking about the father or we're talking about um, his only begotten son, you know, Jesus was called king of the Jews. He still is. I, I, I teach over at the Tree of Life congregation um, with Rabbi Joel Lieberman, and um, many times I will, you know, kiddingly say, um, my goodness, did you know that your Messiah, your Savior was was Jewish, and he was actually king of the Jews. So whether we're talking about Father God in the role of as king in the king's domain, or we're talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth as king over the earth, uh, over the nations, over us, because we call him when we have a salvation and a born-again experience, we call him not only our Savior, but we're supposed to call him and understand his role is not just to deliver us, just to save us from our captivity or prisons of addictions, of um, afflictions by the, by the enemy. It's also his lordship. In other words, how many Christians say, oh, I you know, accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Well, they forget the Lord part. And it's actually, from a looking at the syntax of it, it, the Lord position in that statement comes first. It comes before the word Savior. So we're going to examine uh, with some questions about what's the point? What is the goal? What is the destiny? What's the objective? What's the target of God the Father sending his Son to restore his kingdom? What does that look like? How do we observe it? How do we hear it? How do we see it? More importantly, how do we experience it? And I'm just going to point it out right in the front. Um, I don't think the church at large, especially the Gentile church, and I'm distinguishing that from the Messianic Jewish congregations. Um, when we say Messianic Jewish, these are, um, these are people who have experienced um, initial salvation and born again. They, they know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, is their Jewish Messiah. Okay, so just to make that distinction between 
rabbinical Jews or traditional Jews or, or Jews that um, um, Hasidic Jews who don't recognize Yeshua Jesus as their Messiah. So I'm making that clarification there. But uh, by and large, Gentile churches unfortunately really do not understand the goal of this whole blueprint, if you will, of Father God as far as what he had in mind when he sent us his only begotten son to take the hit for us, if you will, um, because of our rebelling against God and our rebellion manifested or revealed itself through our sin. And um, we can preach or explain the initial part of that pretty easily in about a minute or two to the unsaved world. But the problem is, in that process of evangelizing and trying to explain the gospel of the kingdom message, we don't really include the last three words after we say the good news of the gospel. We drop often the last three words, which are of the kingdom. And it makes a major difference as to whether we include those three words of the kingdom or whether we don't include them. And so I wanted to um, start off with the question, so why did Jesus come? And I'm just going to read you out of the foreword of the book. It's entitled, the foreword is entitled, The Era of Av, A-V. Av is the Hebrew name for father. So this is the era of Father God. So that's is the title of the foreword, and I kick it off by asking, when I ask Gentile Christians and Messianic believers, why was it that Jesus, is uh, known by his Yeshua in his Jewish name, the Messiah, Yeshua means he saves, why did he come to earth? I usually hear a response, something along the lines of, so that when we physically die, we will be able to go to heaven. And I invite you to do an experiment. Um, Try that out with your uh, Gentile colleagues, with your Gentile friends, um, just with the, the people you know going to church. Ask them that question and see what response you get so that when we die we will get to go to heaven. That's the purpose as to why Father God sent his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to earth. Now, the question is whether that answer that you typically get is accurate or not, according to the Scripture. We have to have Bible for what we believe because what we believe affects and impacts what we do, what we, how we function, what we say. And if we don't 
really understand what Scripture says about the goal of the Judeo-Christian experience, well, then we've got a problem. Or maybe better said, God has a problem on his hands. That is, people don't really even understand the whole point of why he sent his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to the earth. He was very God of very God. He was also very man of very man. So I indicate uh, on the first page of the foreword, Christians today often present the good news of the gospel um, to nonbelievers along the line that the goal of the Christian experience is to secure a heavenly place to go after we physically die. So a typical sample question posed uh, during an attempted evangelism might be, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? If you die tonight, where would you go? And I personally have heard that used by evangelists, young and old. Um, One time I was up in the North County um, surfing, and I heard... Um, some kids from a youth group going down the beach asking that question to people they didn't know, people that they attempted to evangelize. And at the end of, I just kind of watched at a distance on how things were proceeding. Excuse me. And I went up to them and said, how did it go? I mean, how, you know, how did things proceed? And they said, well, it was okay. And I threw out an a, a attempt to say, can I present an alternative question that you may want to um, ask instead of inquiring about a location? And they were open-minded about it, and they said, okay, what, what, what do you think would be effective um, in our inquiries, and I said, how about this? If you die tonight, whom would you meet up with? And they were kind of taken aback because I think they understood, at least in their spirits, they understood the implications that how that question is posed pretty much defines in the question what the goal is. So I, I indicate on page three here, in a somewhat contradictory fashion, Christians also present Christianity's goal to the non-believer, not so much as a religion, but rather as a relationship. And so if that's the explanation uh, to an earlier question as to if you died tonight, where would you go? But then you start talking about a relationship with God. So the next question that comes up is, well, which is the goal? Is it a place or is it a relationship? And a couple of other questions come up. Are those two items mutually exclusive? 
or are they inextricably linked to each other? So, not surprisingly, a potential convert might reasonably ask, well, if the goal of the Christian walk, Judeo-Christian walk, is a relationship with God, um, well, who is the relationship to begin with, or how, how, what does it look like? And the response from a believer, usually when evangelizing is with, it begins with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of course. Well, I recently attended a revival meeting in our local area, and I was listening to the evangelist repeat over and over while pacing back and forth on the platform where he was preaching that the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, and he said this, and I'm not exaggerating, somewhere between 20 and 25 times, it's all about Jesus. Over and over and over and over. And then I am asking the question, is it really all about Jesus? Beginning, end, middle. And basically, I throw out a challenge uh, in this homecoming introduction. I contend that a fair reading of the scriptures, an objective reading of the scriptures, would reveal that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, would probably be the first one to acknowledge that his mission to earth and on earth was primarily focused on something akin to what you see in Luke chapter 15. It was a family reconciliation, you know, with the prodigal son returning, getting his inheritance back, uh, reestablishing his relationship with his human father after he found out that running his own life was a disaster, a fiasco, if you will. Um, so is the family reconciliation um, in conflict or opposed to simply providing a relocation, a change of place as an escape for believers from the earth up to the heavenlies. Was the mission of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was it about cutting short mankind's quest for a perfect and complete divine relationship with the Godhead at the doorstep of Jesus of Nazareth? And I mentioned that context is everything. Jesus would probably begin to answer our earlier question as to why he came to earth by posing a question of his own. After all, he was a teacher. He was a Jewish rabbi. And in that context of teaching, he often answered questions by asking additional questions. And teachers in general often teach by answering probing questions with Questions that they think will lead to the answers, but those questions they come up with on their own. Yeshua, Jesus, might start out with the inquiry of exactly what it was that mankind lost in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, about halfway through the chapter. And so 
If we go back and think about the message of the announcement of Jesus coming by John the Baptist, you get the sense that this is almost a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 talking about who is, who is coming back to restore something. So I'm going to flip over and I'll just rese- see if we can find it here. Isaiah chapter 9. And this, we used it Christmas time a lot. For unto us, this is uh, verse 6 out of Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son, capital S, is given. And listen to this, and the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, he's bringing something with him. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, here's the second time it's mentioned in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now we're talking about what is kingdom? Is kingdom a place only or is it is the kingdom a form of domain, of government that's being brought by this divine child to earth? Is he bringing his kingdom in order to order it and establish it with judgment and justice that we see in verse 7? And from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this sounds like something is coming here rather, rather than us going to an, another location as a goal. And so Jesus talked about the restoration of the kingdom. Now, to restore something means that something that you earlier, by inference that you earlier possessed, that you earlier had as an experience. And when you say we're going to restore something, that assumes that you had in your possession something that maybe you lost, it was taken away from you, um, but you you do not have it now, and it needs to be reconstituted and through restitution, restored back to you. Another word would be redemption. When you redeem something, you, you buy it back f- from one person to uh, replace and restore it back to the original owner or possessor of. It could be property. It could be land. It could be personal things. But the whole focus of this kingdom, whether it's John the Baptist's message or even Zacharias, John the Baptist's father in Luke chapter 1, it's about a restoration of a kingdom. Luke chapter 4, when Yeshua begins his ministry, he talks about, and I will read that as well. Let's go to Luke 4. This is right at the beginning when he is launching 
his ministry. And he is going to quote out of Isaiah. Here we go, Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. Um, this complete Jewish Bible says freedom instead of liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. We have a restoration of what our first parents had experienced in both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Unfortunately, through stealth and fraud and deceit, they lost several things. They lost their relationship with Father God. They, were lo- they lost their authority of, of dominion over the earth, and they lost their inheritance of earth. We're going to explore that. How do you restore the things that were lost by our original parents in Genesis chapter 3? Everything they had in Genesis 1 and 2 will be restored. See you after the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We are talking about the book called Homecoming, um, authored by yours truly, with the subtitle, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And what we're talking about is the foreword of this book, entitled The Era of Av, A-V, which is the Jewish name, for Father. So it's basically the era of Father God. And we're asking the question is, why did uh, the Father God send his son to earth? And I was a jail chaplain for about 10 years uh, with the San Diego County Sheriff Department. I was fluent in Spanish, so I was the Spanish-speaking chaplain. And uh, I knew, well, most of the um, attendees of um, my multi-purpose room sessions on Sunday evenings was with Hispanic um, inmates. And um, I was a former Catholic. I was raised um, in, initially in the Catholic tradition, both all my primary school, my secondary school, and even my college, undergraduate college, I was uh, in the Catholic um, Church and uh, with the even the charismatic Catholic move. And then, you know, eventually I became uh, a Protestant, been a Protestant for 47 years, and um, I'm now t- studying um, with, under a Messianic Jewish rabbi to get the flavor of what they're doing. But um, What's interesting, I should say what God is doing, because he's bringing Jew and Gentile together. That's what this, another part of what this book is all about. Um, the, and we'll study that much later about the mystery. There's lots of mysteries that are being revealed here. Um, and one of the mysteries that we'll discover is the mystery of one new man in 
Jesus Christ, one new man in Yeshua HaMashiach, we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And you see it again. Uh, Paul talks about it in Galatians 2 and 3 as well. And again, you'll see it again in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. And uh, that's one mystery. But another mystery that we're going to be looking at is the mystery of, it's in Colossians chapter 1. It's talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me see if I can find that real quick. Here it is. There are lots of mysteries that are being revealed in these days. And, yeah, it's actually Colossians one I'll read actually starting one twenty six. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints, to them God willed, past tense, to make known what the riches of the glory of this mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And going back to this era of Father God, why did Yeshua come? And uh, I used to trick the inmates, knowing that they were Catholic, and I knew that <laughs> they would have the same teaching that I did. And so I would uh, go to John chapter 14, and um, when it talks about in John fourteen twenty one, he who has my commandments and keeps him, this is Jesus talking to his apostles the night before he died, um, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved, here's the mention of the Father here, by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then two verses later, look at John uh, fourteen twenty-three. Uh, Judas, not the Iscariot Judas, asked him, Lord, how will we know that you will... Manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And here's the mention of the Father again. And my Father will love him, and we will come, plural, notice, we will come to him and make our home with him. And notice it says our home. Okay? So, what I would do, staying in the same chapter of John 14, I would often misquote this verse of John 14.6. Again, same context. Jesus is talking to the apostles the night before he uh, dies, and he says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, and then what I would do very quickly is I insert a word called, no one comes to heaven except through me. I would do that on purpose. I would insert incorrectly that word just to see if anyone would pick up on it because I knew what they were taught as to what the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk was and what they were taught and the Catholic world, and also in the Protestant world as as well, as I found out later, um, that the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk was heaven. But when I stopped talking, 
I closed up the Bible. I would put it on the desk, and I'd wait. There were like 45 guys in the in the uh, multipurpose room there. I'd wait for somebody, and I would just look at them. I wouldn't say anything. And they started to get a little nervous. Why is the instructor, why is the teacher not saying anything? And eventually someone would go into the Bible and and find the verse that we just finished reading, John fourteen six, and they'd raise their hand and say, Chaplain, um, my Bible doesn't say, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It says that, but it doesn't say no one gets to heaven except through me. And I asked them, and I'd say, well, what does your Bible say? Of course, we handed out it to everyone, uh, typically Gideon Bibles or, or uh, Spanish Bibles that included the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, the response from the inmate would say, my Bible says no one comes to the Father except through me. And I say, well, let me check my Bible. Oh, my goodness. And I'd look at John fourteen six, and I'd say, you know what? You are absolutely right. And uh, oftentimes, inevitably, the hand would go up and say, well, what difference does it make? Why is the goal, whether it's a place or whether it's a relationship with Father, um, what difference does it make? And then I would ask or answer his question with a question of my own, and I'd say, well, you're an inmate, and you hope to get out of this jail soon, and my job as a chaplain is to reduce the recidivism rate in this jail. Um, let me ask you a question. Would you live your life any differently if you believe that the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk was a relationship, restoration, with your divine Father as opposed to just dying and, you know, getting a ticket to go someplace, a place called heaven? Would you live your life moment by moment, day by day, any differently if those two goals were distinguished one from another. And I just wait. And there was some real long pauses while he contemplated that. And most of the time they would be honest and say, they'd raise their hand and say, actually, you know what, I would live my life differently. And I said, okay, explain to the rest of the group here, rest of the inmates in this room, why you would live differently. And the typical answer would be, look, if the goal of Jesus coming to earth was to restore a previous relationship that my, my original parents had with Father God, um, and John fourteen six says, no one gets to the Father but through me, but Heaven's not mentioned anywhere uh, in John chapter 14. Uh, Just getting a ticket to go to a place, I would live a more casual Christian life. But if I have to meet up with my divine Father, I would have to give an accounting to him in that day of judgment as to what I thought what I said, what I did, what my motivations were, what my incentives were, what was in my heart, uh, 
I would live my life radically differently. And I said, awesome. Remember this exchange back and forth because when you get out of here, you're going to get a chance, a second chance to make that decision. What the goal was when Jesus returned to restore something, restoring a kingdom, a government. But this government belongs to God's order of things, God's blueprint of things, God's structure of things, God's grand design of things, as opposed to just dying and going to a place. And I recently attended a a celebration of life to a pastor that I had for 15 years, and it was pretty amazing. I, I actually saw one of the previous inmates <laughs> that attended one of those teaching sessions. And I know of his background of addictions to drugs and things of this nature, heavy drugs. And I just gave him a hug, a big hug, and I said, the look in your eye, the clarity of the look in your eyes shows me that Jesus, Yeshua, is living in you. That's exactly what John 14.21 and John 14.23 talk about. We, he who loves me will keep my commandments, and he who keeps my word, and my Father will love him. So notice it, that... Jesus brings up the Father in this context, and he says, listen, in John 14, 23, and we will come to him, and listen to the next part, and make our home with him. Now, we're talking about not God with us, or God near us, or God next to us, or God in close proximity to us, we're talking about incarnation, indwelling of the Godhead inside of us. And that's what I saw last Saturday in this former inmate's eyes as we were hugging each other as brothers in the Lord. And I told him that. I said, you have such uh, divine clarity in your eyes. And he had a look of joy and a countenance of divine peace on his face. And I tell you, it just, you know, sometimes when you're working in that type of prison or jail ministry, you're wondering, is this doing any good at all? But when God, you know, reunites you with people with whom you've had maybe minimum contact, you just had a give this explanation of why Jesus came. You only have one shot sometimes to do it in jail ministry. And and to go to the next step and say, the reason Jesus came was to reintroduce us to our divine Father when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Listen to this in John fourteen six. John 14, 6. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He did not talk about a location. The location is not the point. It is the relationship, the family reunion relationship with our Abba. Paul calls him, calls him in Romans, Abba, Father. The Jews call him Av, Father God. Avinu in Hebrew means our Father. By the way, the only prayer that Jesus taught when asked, how do we pray? Listen to the title of it. If you were raised a Catholic, you know that the only prayer that Jesus taught us is called the Our Father. It starts off with those two words. <laughs> and if you're a Protestant, it's called the Lord's Prayer. But it starts off with the same two words. It's the same prayer, whether you're a Catholic or whether you're a Protestant, whether you're a Messianic Jew. Our Father. And I have always taught that the, I think the coolest word, the um, un, most unbelievably awesome word in the Bible is the word our as the first word of that prayer. And the reason that I've always taught it that way is because when you use the plural, saying our Father, and it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth on earth looking at you in that moment, and he's looking at you in your eyes, and he says, our Father. It's almost like he had his index finger, and he's making a small circle, and he's going our. Like, in other words, he's making sure that you understand that Father God is 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 his father as well. And he's saying, our father. And then he points with his index finger straight up. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay? And he starts to pray what it's all about with the next lines. He's saying, Father, your kingdom come. Where was Jesus when he says, your kingdom, your government, your order of things, your structure, because we're a mess down here on earth ever since Genesis chapter 3 when we bought into the lies of the fallen angels who wanted to take over our inheritance of earth. And just a little quick rabbit trail. People say, where does it say that earth is our inheritance? Take a look at Psalms 115. Verse 16, Psalms 115, verse 16, it pretty much clearly spells out this thing that Satan doesn't want us to understand. The heaven, even the heavens, plural, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Earth is is our inheritance. It's not was our inheritance. And, and so that's another part of Yeshua coming back to restore this kingdom, the plan of the Father, 
when the Father saw everything when he created and then rested on the seventh day in Genesis 1.31, he declared everything that he created, including man, and including putting man in charge over the earth, he said it was very good. That's what's going to be restored. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, back to the earth. And that's one of the big reasons he sent his son to change the view of us that it's all about getting out of here, our inheritance, writing the earth off as a lost cause, writing off the nations that live in the earth also as a lost cause. Satan would love nothing more than us to write everything off, get out of here, get out of Dodge, go up into heaven with the idea of remaining there forever. That's what I was taught as a Catholic. That's what I was taught as a Protestant. All the while, in Luke chapter 4, Satan takes the Son of God, takes Jesus up to the mountain, and he shows him something that was supposed to be a temptation and could be his if Jesus would just worship the fallen angel. And he says, I have the authority to give you this. It's been given to me. Now notice what was the prize that was supposed to be a temptation for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Satan did not show him heaven as the prize as the big goal, as the objective, as the target. We've got to really change our, our perspective here and do a 180 and get back to what the Scripture teaches. Satan showed Jesus the earth, the world, and it's the, all the nations of that world. So here we have these two rulers, one of the fallen angelic kingdom who disagreed with Father God's plan by putting mankind in charge of the earth and over all the animals and, and, and over the animal kingdom to steward it, to run it, to have dominion over it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Satan was furious with that, believing that he and his fallen angels were more powerful and more able to run things. And here are these dust balls that Father God breathes life into and he gives them charge over all of this. That was the plan of the Father. And Jesus, who is King of King and Lord of Lords, over the restoration of his Father's kingdom back to earth, doesn't fall for the temptation. But it's interesting. This is the only point I'm trying to bring up. The prize were the people of the nations and the living in the world, in the earth. Heaven wasn't mentioned. I'm not anti-heaven. Some people say, why are you so against heaven? I'm not against heaven. When I die, I want to go to heaven. Okay, heaven must be awesome. But heaven's not our home. 
It's not our permanent home. It may be a way station until we return back with Jesus, as it says in Revelation 19 or in, in the letter of Jude. He comes back with his saints, not just his angels, his humans. Revelation 5 gives us, says, hey, we're going to rule and reign with him on the earth. Revelations 5, 9 and 5, 10. So it's a circular restoration process. And that's why the title is called of this book, Homecoming. We're coming back home. It's a family reunion back to our Father through the Son by the Spirit. So are you guys ready for some challenging notions of it's back to the Bible hour? God bless you for the week coming up. I hope you have many simple truth moments. We'll see you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.